It's easy in our world to become cynical and to think that everyone is in the same category. A conversation that took place on a recent international flight kind of sums it all up best. Apparently the captain of the plane was Jewish and the new first officer was Taiwan Chinese. And it was the first time that they had ever flown together and it was obvious by the silence that there was a little bit of tension in the cockpit. And after about 30 minutes, finally the, uh, the uh, captain spoke and he said, you know, I don't like Chinese. And the first officer replied, says, oh, you know, like Chinese. Why, why is that? The captain said, well, you bombed Pearl Harbor. That's why I don't like the Chinese. And the first officer said, no, no, the Chinese not bombed Pearl Harbor. That was Japanese, not Chinese. And the captain answered, Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, whatever, you're all the same as far as I'm concerned. Another 30 minutes of silence into a 16-hour flight. Finally, the first officer looked over and says, You know what? I know like Jews. Cap said, Why not? He said, Because the Jews sink Titanic. The captain turned to try to correct him and said, No, no, Jews didn't sink Titanic. It was an iceberg. first officer responded, Iceberg, Goldberg, Rosenberg, you're all the same to me. Now that's making a point, isn't it? I guess we're not all the same. And in our last session together, we were introduced to four men of courage, men who refused to go with the flow or take the easy road. And their lives were an act of courage. And their acts of courage are recorded in the Bible. And if you've got yours with you, specifically the book of Daniel is what we're looking at. And as we look at this particular section, we'll find out that uh, these lives, the men of these lives, um, and their courage indicates to us that, you know what, not all men are the same. There are some who are different. There are some who stand out among the, uh, the crowd. And uh, I guess the issue and the question is, as we go through this, are we, are we a Daniel in a way as far as standing out and being courageous in a culture that's opposed to the things of God? In Daniel chapter 1, we begin with this particular verse, verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated for three years, and at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. Now among them were the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Balthachazar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. It says, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord, my king, who has appointed your food and your drink, for why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, says, please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. 
Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants accordingly to what you see. So he listened to them in the matter and tested them for ten days. And at the end of ten days, their appearance seemed better and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the drink and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. But, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. In this particular section, we're going to learn three things that will help, help us to better understand not only Daniel and his friends, but also this, uh, this rare character trait of courage that seems to be lacking in our culture today. And we saw in our last meeting together the circumstances that brought them to, to Babylon. The first thing is po- uh, called out for us in verses 1 and 2. It says, In the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, came of, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. It wasn't even his first uh, pr- uh, priority. His first priority was to chase Pharaoh Necho back to Egypt. And as he was chasing him through Jerusalem, the Pharaoh continued with his army to go back home. And as Nebuchadnezzar and his army went past Jerusalem, they put on the brakes, slammed on the chariots, and said, Hey, I remember this place and the stories that we heard about it. And it was a place of tremendous wealth. And so they, they stopped there. But the important thing to realize is this, that God gave them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The nation of Israel had been disobedient before God and God had warned them continually through the prophets that they must repent of their sins and turn from it. And if they wouldn't do it, that God would step in and discipline. And the Bible is very clear that to whom, you know, that God is a God, as a a father who lovingly disciplines his children. That as God's people, as we get out of hand or we go in a wrong direction and he warns us about the sin sin in our life, he says, you better repent or else I'm going to have to step in and I'm going to have to discipline you, I'm going to have to judge you. And oftentimes, God uses people around us to be able to enact His judgment. And that's exactly what we see happening here. The invasion of Nebuchadnezzar was, a, was an act of discipline or judgment by God for a rebellious nation who, was, who had turned their back on God. And so Nebuchadnezzar, as he was going through, didn't even realize it would be a vehicle of God's own discipline to his own people. And so this is where Daniel and, and uh, his friends were taken into captivity. The Bible tells us that the instructions that, that were given to uh, Ashpen as the chief official was to take some of the royal family back to Babylon, which is about 800 miles north of Jerusalem, to take them into captivity, which was something that occurred often whenever another country would, would come in and besiege another country. They would take the cream of the crop, so to speak. And we look at, and that's exactly what happened here. So the instruction that Ashpenaz was to give, he said, hey, you're, you're to bring back youths in whom was no defense who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court. And as he brought these youths back to Babylon, there was going to be a game plan. And the game plan was to brainwash them, to change everything about them. First, we saw that they were going to be changed mentally. They were to be taught the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. It all starts with our mind, as we shall see as we go through this passage. They were going to learn a new language. They are going to learn a new way of thinking. They were to forget everything that they had learned up to that point and say, hey, it's time to start fresh and forget it. Now, we see that happen often in life when somebody goes to work for another company and say, but in my old company, and the point that is always made is this. Why? That's exactly it. That was your old company. 
This is your new company, or your new team, or your new school, or your new whatever. And you know what? Just forget everything you've learned up to this point, because we don't do things like that here. And it's time to start thinking freshly, thinking in new ways. And everyone, as we look in world history, always thought their way was the best way. So it's not surprising that when you went to Babylon, you were going to do things the Babylonian way, the Chaldean way, because they were convinced at that time they were riding on top of the world that why would we do it like the Egyptians do it? Why would you do it like uh, the Jews do it? Why would you do it like anybody else does it? We're, we're, the, you know, we're on top of the world. You're going to do it like we want you to do it. And so they would change how they would think. They also changed their social circle. They put them together with other people who were just like them. Chosen men who had taken out of all, the, all of those that could have been taken captive. They picked the cream of the crop and said, we're going to change all your social ways as well. You are now going to spend time with people who are just like you. You're going to spend time with those who, who are in the elite category. We're going to change your social circle. We're going to remove some of the friends that you've had in your life before. You're going to have all new friends. And all your social life, life is going to change as well. And they change basically the environment. Notice this brainwashing technique is very similar to everything that we experience today. First, we want to change the way people think. And then we'll change their environment. And then we've got the whole package. As long as we change what they believe as well. And their religious beliefs are going to be changed. And it's indicative of what we find happening in verse 7 where it says, And they assigned them new names. The names that were assigned all had, quote, religious significance. And it'll be important as we see that, that that was exactly what they were trying to do. What they were saying was, hey, you know what? We're going to dilute you of everything that you've learned. We're going to change your social circle and the friends that you're with. We're going to give you things uh, physically, materially, and we're going to change what you believe. And your allegiance to your God and your love for your God will have to be put aside or left behind in Jerusalem as well if you're going to be successful in this new environment. Now, what's fascinating as we look at this, Daniel and his friends were facing probably the most subtle form of temptation. They weren't being persecuted or treated harshly. On the, on the contrary, they were being, these prisoners, and you can put that in quotation, these prisoners were being offered, you know, a piece of the action. They were being cut in. They were being made a part of everything that was going on. They were going to enjoy the best this world has to offer. They were being offered a top-notch education, the best food, the best wine, the best clothing, the best shelter. Notice what was said. And the king appointed for them, in verse 5, a daily ration from the king's choice food. I mean, stop and think about it. These prisoners were going to be eating the same food that was prepared for the king. That's not exactly a rough prison system. And as we look at this, it's very subtle what's going on here. They're going to be given the top education, the best food, the best wine, the best clothing, the best shelter, the exclusive social club, <laughs> membership to the country club. And, it was, you know, and, and notice this too. And at the end of this three years, they were guaranteed job placement. This is a great package. And the only thing they had to do was make a couple small compromises on the way. You notice how subtle that is? All you got to do is make a couple of small little corrections in the way you think, in the way you conduct yourself, and in what you believe. And all of this is yours. And if you just go with the flow, and you don't make any waves, and you do what you're told to do, all of this could be yours. And the sky is the limit of what we can do for you. All they'd have to do in the, in the meantime, or all they'd have to exchange is just basically set aside everything they knew to be right. And their belief in their God and their love for their God. That's all they were being asked to do. 
So how do you think these young men responded to such temptation and pressure to conform? And that's basically what I want to concentrate on in this next section because it is amazing when you look at it with the convictions that we'll find of Daniel and his friends. The convictions of Daniel and his friends is incredible when you look at it. In fact, if, if you've got your Bibles, let's go through verses 8 through 16 and take a look at this. This is an incredible section that deals with courage. It says, But Daniel made up his mind. He made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander and the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. And why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Notice the first thing that we see here. The first phrase, the key phrase in this section is found in verse 8. It says, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. But Daniel proposed, some translations say, but Daniel proposed in his heart. But Daniel made up his mind. As you go through the Bible and you study the Bible, when you see the word but indicates a contrast of thought. And the contrast of thought that's taking place is exactly as I laid it all out. And that's this. It indicates this contrast. In, in, in context, these men were being offered the world for what would appear to many in our culture today to be only a small price or a small compromise. You notice that? Wow, what's, what's the big deal? Wait a minute. I can have all of this, the education, the food, the shelter, the clothing, the exclusive country club membership, guaranteed job placement. I can have all of that and all I've got to do is compromise in this one little area? That doesn't seem like much of a price to pay. And after all, God certainly would understand. He knows the predicament that we're in. He knows the pressure that's on us. He sees where we are. He knows we're, we're in prison here that we're captive, that we don't really have a choice in the matter. He'll understand. It's a tough environment to be in for a young teenager. But this is what's incredible about this. But Daniel, the contrast is, but Daniel proposed, or or Daniel made up his mind or proposed in his heart that he would not cave in. It's remarkable when you think about it that he wasn't snowed or taken in by all of this treatment. Think about the Chaldean pressures and temptations. And and if you think about it, as a teenager, how vulnerable must he have been? It's incredible when you think about the strength and the courage of this young man and his friends. You know, we've got laws in our country that protect children, young people, from adults who scheme and snow and, and take them in with the same subtle form of temptation. Our culture even understands that children are vulnerable to adults who prey upon young people. And what's fascinating, when you look at all this, Daniel was a healthy, hungry teenager away from the protective environment of his home and and exposed to all that the world had to offer. Man, this guy was like a young person who had just gone away to college for the first time. Or out on his own for the first time into the workplace, moved out of the house and is gone. and, and, And away from all the protections that we as parents have to offer in the environment that we try to give them. The kid was 800 miles away from home being offered the world on a silver platter. Would it be feast or would it be faith? That was the choice. Let me ask you a question. When you left the protective environment of your own home for the first time, was it feast or faith for you? 
What would you choose? What have you chosen? What are you choosing daily? See, Daniel chose faith. It's interesting as we go through this because there's some things uh, about courage that really jumped out at me as I was going through this particular section. I want to share them with you and we'll go through them one at a time. And the first one is this. You notice that Daniel's courageous decision was made in his heart. Daniel's decision was made in his heart. It was proposed in his heart. It was made in his own mind. It was kind of like Daniel said, you know what? But Daniel knew where to draw the line. Daniel knew where to draw the line and he knew where to hunker down, where to hold fast, to stand firm. He knew that, you know what, if I take this little step across this line, you know what, then there's no stopping where it's going to end up. He knew where to draw the line. He proposed in his own heart, he made up his own mind, he drew a line in the sand and said, I won't be bought. I won't go with the flow. I'm going to do what's right. I'm determined to do what's right. Even though I'm far away from home, even though the people that I grew up with and saw me grow up, you know, even though they're not around anymore, you know what, that doesn't make any difference because I know in my heart what's right and I know in my heart what's wrong and I want to do what's right. You know, this is the birthplace of of courage if you think about it. It's always in the heart. It's always in our mind. It starts with our thoughts and our heart. See, that's why the brainwashing technique began with their mind. God, you know, they wanted to change their mind about what they thought was right or wrong. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, The Lord is not like man. He doesn't look at the outward appearance, but He looks at the heart. There's a reason for that. 1 Kings 3, 9 said, King Solomon asked God for an understanding heart. And yet later in 1 Kings chapter 11, we read in verses 1 through 4 that God warned Solomon that if he began to entertain and to, to uh, entertain the, the, foreign, the foreign wives or the foreign women of the nations that they would conquer and destroy, if he began to entertain having a relationship with them, to spending time with them, to be involved sexually with them, what would happen is that, their, that his heart would be turned from God. And his heart would be turned by these women to their gods, small, smaller case G. And God says that's exactly what happened to Solomon. He said the reason that it happened to him was was this, and and catch this phrase, it happened to him because his heart was not wholly devoted to God. There was that area that he compromised, and it led to defeat in his life. His heart was not wholly devoted to God. Yet King David prayed this in Psalm 51.10, God created me a clean heart. Clean me up. Take my heart and and scrub it. Take my mind, scrub it. Get rid of all the thoughts that I have that are wrong before you. Get rid of everything that I entertain in my mind that isn't pleasing to you. In any way, shape, or form. God created me a clean heart. Just clean it all up. God knows we're a mess. He knows we struggle with our thought life. He knows that. He knows you struggle with it. He knows I struggle with it. He knows you may be sitting here right now trying to pay attention to his word and struggling with something else that you shouldn't even be thinking about. And the prayer of David was, God, just clean me up. I'm a mess. The Bible tells us we're to treasure God's word in our heart so that we don't sin against God. That the word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Why is the heart so important? Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Because Jesus gives us a very clear understanding of why our heart is so important. In Mark 7, verse 14, we read these words. Jesus 
starting with verse seven of Mark chapter, starting with verse fourteen of Mark chapter seven, Jesus deals with this whole area of our heart. And he says, and after he called the multitude to him again, he began saying to them, "Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which is going into him can defile him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If any man has ears, let him hear." And when leaving the multitude, he had entered the house, and his disciples questioned him about this parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is then eliminated? And he was saying, That which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications and thefts, murders and adulteries, Deeds of coveting and wickedness as well as deceit and sensuality, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. And all these things, all these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. You notice what he's saying here? And it's very important that we understand it's a very important spiritual principle and that's this. Jesus was warning them as well as us that our thought life always leads to action. Our actions always begin with our thoughts. Notice what he's saying. Don't you understand that when you sit around and you think evil thoughts, that ultimately you'll do evil deeds? If you sit around thinking about, hey, you know what, fornication, I want to have sex with my girlfriend or boyfriend outside of marriage, and that's all I'm thinking about, and the more you think about it, the more you want to do it, and the more you want to do it, all you're lacking is an opportunity, and the more you think about doing it, one day you'll do it. Why? Because it all starts in our thought life. He says, don't you see the same about slander? You begin to think about somebody in an evil way. You begin thinking about, you know, what what you want to say and who you want to say it to and you can't believe that this is happening or that's happening and you can't wait to find somebody and then you're going to share that with them. It all starts in our minds and in our thoughts and in our hearts. All we're lacking is an opportunity to share it with somebody that'll listen to us, that'll give us an ear. Thefts, hey, I want that. Coveting, same thing. In our mind, we stop and think, hey, I want what they have. And people devise plans and go to elaborate schemes. And all the energy and the effort that goes through, hey, you know what? It takes a lot of time and effort and energy to rob a bank. There's some brilliant thinking going on in the world today in the areas of crime. I mean, we've got to have some of the, the, the most brilliant people our country has to offer to fight some of the most brilliant people that this country has to offer who are dedicating themselves to doing what's wrong in our culture. There's a lot of thought that goes into crime. There's always thought that goes into it, but sometimes there's a lot of thought that goes into it. Covening and deceit and sensuality, pleasing yourself in a sensual way of some sort, pleasing your senses, envy, the same thing, slander, pride. You remember Jesus said about adultery? He said, hey, if you, if you lust for a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Why? What was he saying? He was saying that, hey, the more you think about committing an act of adultery with another person, all you're lacking is the opportunity to do it. And that's the point that he was trying to make. And the point that he wants all of us to understand in pride and foolishness, pride, we sit around and we think that we're always right, we're never wrong, and we begin to entertain that in our mind, no matter what the evidence is, no matter what it is to the contrary, we sit around and we think and we justify and we rationalize our own positions in life. And Jesus said, don't you understand and don't you realize that your actions always proceed from your thoughts? That's why it's, in, it's critical as the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, it is imperative that we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ.
Daniel is a living, breathing, walking example of that, and so are his friends, as we'll see. These were men that took every thought in obedience, every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You see that? Daniel's decision was made in his own heart. It was made in his own mind. He was wholly devoted to God. And the first time that compromise was offered to him, he already understood what it is. He already saw the package. He realized how dangerous it was. And you know what he said? Hey, but Daniel made up his mind not to defile himself. He saw it for what it is. How many of us can say the same thing? His decision was made in his own heart. It wasn't the conviction anymore of his parents or his friends or the environment that he grew up in that was so comfortable wasn't that at all. It was time that he grew up. Isn't that interesting? And the reason it's so interesting is, it's, I guess it's a kind of like, uh, at this particular point, it would be wise to give a word to those of us who are parents. And as parents, you know, we're told by God to train up our children in the way that they should go. Proverbs 22, 6, Deuteronomy chapter 6 are very clear, the things that we're supposed to do. We're to train them up in the way they should go, and the way that they should go is God's way. They should love God with their, their whole heart, mind, and soul. And they should, you know, they should love their neighbor as themselves. They should be dedicated wholly to God and do what was right before God. We should train them up in that way. That's the way they're supposed to go. We're to teach them, to train them. We're to discipline them when they step out of bounds and do what's wrong before God. That's all part of the training process that every parent has a responsibility before God to, uh, to, to take part in. But what's interesting is, is that they are then responsible and accountable to God for their own actions. There's a point in every child's life where he or she must come to a point where they own their own convictions. And that happens only after those convictions are tested and they pass the test. Now I'm going to be brutally honest here. I don't know too many parents that are willing to allow their children to forge out their own faith. It's so scary, isn't it? To give them the freedom to make decisions in life. It's a scary thing. After all, we know them. And that's what makes it so scary. We want to protect them from themselves. I understand it. So do you. But what's fascinating to me is this. There's a point where we have to trust them that we've done what's right before them. There's a point where we have to trust God that God wants them to grow in their love for the Lord even more so than we do. There's a point where we just got to kind of let go and let God take over. And that's the hardest thing in the world to do. And I know parents that are 80 years old and have 40-year-old children that are still trying to basically live the lives of their kids. And that's about as frustrating an experience as you ever get. We all go through it and we all struggle with it. See, what's fascinating is is that Daniel's parents didn't have to wrestle with it. Because he was taken from them. And all they could do at that point was just pray and trust God that he'd do the right thing in his new environment. 800 miles away from home, a college for the first time with a roommate you didn't know anything about. Wondering if everything that you taught them and everything that you, every, all the training would pay off somewhere along the line. And you know what's fascinating to me is that Daniel passed the test. Daniel passed the test. He was allowed to forge out his own convictions. 
he was allowed to work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. He was able to draw the line and to be courageous. You know, and I think that's more of a statement as far as uh, the, the trustworthiness of God than actually even Daniel's parents, if you think about it. Because God says this, if you train up a child in the, way she, in the way that he should go, even when he's old, he won't depart from it. Isn't that interesting? I think it's a testimony to the faithfulness of God. Did Daniel's parents always do the right thing? I doubt it. They were parents like all of us. I'm sure they made their mistakes. They did their best. They tried their hardest. They, 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 they tried to, you know, help them to see that they loved the Lord and wanted what was best for them. But they made mistakes because they're human beings. I'm sure they did. And yet what's fascinating is that we can basically trust God in this whole process. <laughs> and that's really what it comes down to. Because Daniel was courageous, and the reason he was courageous was that his determination was based on his obedience. And it was based on his obedience to the Word of God. Notice that. His determination back in Daniel chapter 1, his determination was based on the Word of God. It wasn't based on mom and dad's rules. That's not what got him through his first year away at college. <laughs> that wasn't it at all. It wasn't based on, you know, other people's rules in his life. If you stop and think about it, you know, you look at this, he discerned the plot behind all of this because he had a clear understanding of the Word of God. And that's what gave him determination. Notice that. He says, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself. That term or that phrase refers to God's dietary restrictions. As Daniel grew in his home, he had been trained in the way that he should go. And his way he should go was to be obedient to the Word of God. And in this, this specific area of his life, it was being obedient to the dietary laws of God. For the Jewish nation, if you look at Leviticus chapter 11, we don't have time, but read it on your own. It goes into great detail of what they could and could not eat. I mean, God is very thorough because He wants to make sure it's very clear to us what He, what he demands of our life. And it was very thorough what they could and could not eat. And it was also very thorough what they could and could not drink. In Numbers chapter 6, in case He took the vow... He couldn't drink wine. He couldn't eat certain foods. I mean, not only could they not drink wine, he can even have raisin bran for breakfast if there are raisins in it. I mean, he couldn't do it. It was just against God's law. That's as simple as it got. No raisin bran. And so as we look at this, it says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not, what? Defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. You notice that? What is he trying to say? Saying, hey, you know, I, I, there are certain things that I'm not allowed to eat according to God's laws. He knew His law. He treasured them in His heart so that He wouldn't sin against God. He knew the laws of God and said, hey, I can't eat that food. I can't drink that wine. But some of us would say, but maybe that food isn't, you know, part of the dietary restrictions. Let's go through carefully Leviticus 11. Maybe we can find it out and just eat certain stuff. Say, that wasn't the point at all because there was a greater issue in Exodus 34. If, if something was, was offered to a false god then they weren't permitted to eat it as well because it became unclean. So now put yourself in Daniel's position. He's offered this food. It's the same food that the king's eating. He knows it's against the dietary laws of God. And even if it isn't, he's got a real good understanding that if it was given to the food, the food to the king, then before it was even given to the king, it was offered as a sacrifice to the God of this particular nation so that the God would bless it and purify it and make it clean for the king to eat. So he already knew that there was no way he could eat this food and there's no way he can drink the wine. So now he's got a problem. Some of, it, some of us are always looking for that out. But wait, maybe it wasn't, well, maybe it wasn't offered to the God. Maybe it was part of the diet. You know what? Here, here's a principle for you. And I believe that Daniel lived his life on this principle and I was shared for all of us to grab hold of if we're going to be create, courageous. And that's this. When in doubt, don't. When in doubt, don't. 
If you're not sure something is pleasing before God, then don't do it. Dig into the Word of God, study it, get godly counsel from other people, pray about it. And if you're still in doubt, don't do it. It's as simple as it gets. James 4.17 says this, Hey, to him that knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. So the reality of what Daniel's life was all about was this. When in doubt, he didn't. There was, there was genuine cause to doubt here. And he didn't do it. Wasn't that fascinating as we go through this? It's amazing if you look at this. His determination was based on the Word of God. Now stop and think about this. If all that we have to offer our children are our rules and regulations, that's not going to get them through the next step. Because half the time, they may think our rules and regulations are nonsense, and once they're out of that umbrella that we give them, <laughs> then they're like, woohoo! Don't have those rules and regulations anymore. What's wrong with drinking? What's wrong with doing drugs? What's wrong with having protected sex? What's wrong with debt? What's wrong with materialism? What's wrong with my friends? What's wrong with homosexuality? We see it all around us. It can't be wrong. Everybody seems to be embracing it. I guess that's not wrong anymore. What's wrong with all this stuff? What's wrong with abortion? What's wrong with lying? What's wrong with cheating? What's wrong with stealing? After all, you know, everything's situational anymore. You've got to understand the situation. As long as something good comes out of it, it doesn't matter how, you know, how we get there, what road we take. See, if there's not a clear understanding of God's position on these subjects and areas of life, there will be tremendous pressure to conform and to be politically correct. We got a good dose of that this week. And I just want to share with you, because I got a little more inside information than what you see on television, but Reggie White has been taken through the ringer, even by God's people. And the reason for it is they get a distorted picture of the things that he say and they take out of context and they throw it on the news and they try to make a godly man who is visibly a visible spokesman in our culture for the things of God. They try to do like they do to every other person who takes a stand in an evil culture, in an evil nation. They make him try to look like an idiot. He is not an idiot. He knows the Word of God. And he shared very clearly the Word of God. And in that 2020 interview that some of us saw on TV, there was the pressure to retract his statements. Why? Because there was a job waiting at the end of all of it. Hey, if you can just tone down your position on homosexuality, hey, we'll give you a job with CBS. If you can just come back on the air and say, well, that's not what I meant. I really didn't meant to say, mean to say that homosexuality is a sin. I didn't mean to say that. That's all they were asking him to do. But he knew the Word of God. And he also was very articulate about the fact that homosexuality to God is no greater than any other sin. He ranks it with lying, cheating, stealing, murdering, coveting, jealousy, envy, strife. Homosexuality is just another, another sin in the sight of God. No big sins, little sins to God. Maybe man comes up with ways that this one's bigger than the other. But as far as God's concerned, that all sin is an abomination to him. And the point that he was trying to make is that God lumps that particular behavior in with all the rest of them. And yet somehow we're trying to dice it all up and segregate and say, well, fornication, having sex outside of marriage, oh, that, that's really, and if you love each other and it's protected sex, that's not sin. Homosexuality, that's not sin. We're trying to find ways to embrace things that God clearly says in His Word are wrong. And you know what? We're going to be under the pressure, uh, uh, the same pressure that Daniel was under, to either, you know what? Hey, can you be a little more politically correct? Because that's not very loving to say that somebody's doing something that's sinned before God. And his point was simply this. What is more loving? 
to allow people to do that which is wrong before God and, and, and to face the certainty of the judgment of God or to step up and be heard in our culture and say, you know what, all of us need to repent of our sin because judgment is coming one day. What's a more loving thing to do? The illustration that I always like to use is this. You know, you know a fire's coming, it's going to take your neighbor's life. And they're in their house sound asleep. And they're cozy and comfortable in bed. And you know the fire's going to come and it's going to destroy their house and everything in it. And they're going to die. And, and, the, and the attitude that you have is, but I, want to go, I don't want to go over at 3 o'clock in the morning and wake them up. After all, they're probably really cozy and comfortable in their position and, 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 you know, and they're enjoying their behavior. And who am I to step in and say, you're going to die! That's really what this is all about. Do you realize that Daniel was a man of courage, a young man of courage, who stepped up to the plate and said, you know what? Hey, I'm not going to defile myself. I'm not going to do what's wrong before God. And you know, frankly, I don't care if I lose a job to CBS or I don't care what it costs me. I don't care because I know the Word of God and I can't compromise. I know what it says and I'm here to declare the truth. Hey, who cares about being politically correct? Let's, let's be right with God. It's interesting as Daniel knew the word of God and was determined to obey it in every situation in life regardless of potential consequences. That's the kind of courage that we need. That's the kind of courage that God wants to give his people in a culture that's so hell-bent against God. It says this young man was, was dragged away from home to a new land, to a new culture that didn't recognize God and his laws and yet he was determined to remain faithful. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great story? I mean, this is a great illustration of courage under fire. And as we'll see, of courage rewarded by God. He's an example, a living, breathing example of Romans 12, 1 and 2. You know, a guy who is not conformed to this world, but he's being transformed. How? By the renewing of his mind. How was his mind renewed? Because he knew the Word of God. That's what it took. Interesting, it's important to note also, now look at verse 8. His important thing as we challenge the culture that we find ourselves in today. It's important that we do it the right way. Notice how Daniel does this. He's not rebellious, he doesn't have a bad attitude, he doesn't have a get-in-your-face kind of style as he goes through and looks at these people. I mean, he, he doesn't have any of that. Look what he says in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says this. So Daniel sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. You notice that? He sought permission. He said, hey, you know what? I understand what you're trying to accomplish. Is there another way that we can do it? A way that would be pleasing still to Daniel's God and pleasing still to the integrity that Daniel had in his own heart, but he did it in a way that wasn't, I'm not going to do it. He tried to do it in a loving way, in non, a non-confrontational way. Some of us work for people that are asking you to do things that are wrong before God. You have to be able to approach them in a way that respects their authority, which he probably learned at home. He certainly learned, learned it from the Word of God. To respect their authority and yet realize that you're not going to compromise no matter what they say. But there's got to be a way that maybe they'll give you an ear and listen to what you have to say. That's what he did. He said, you know, excuse me, can I talk to you for a moment? And look what it says. And, and God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. The book of Nehemiah says that Nehemiah prayed first before he went to see the king. I would suggest the same. If you've got a person in authority over your life that is asking you to do something that's a compromise in your faith and your devotion, holy hearted devotion to God, then I would suggest that you pray first. God paved the way. Paved the way. You know what? The Bible tells us in Proverbs 21 that the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of God. And he can direct it any way that he wants. Do you realize that sometimes all that's lacking is, Lord, just can you soften this person's heart? 
so they'll receive what I'm about to share with them. And in this particular case, the Bible says, and God granted Daniel compassion in this man's sight. He granted him compassion. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, yeah, but you know what? Hey, I'm afraid. Let me just tell you the honest truth here. I don't have a problem. I like you. And the word compassion is, is uh, has said, which is a loving, a loving kindness or compassion or sympathy. What he's saying was, man, I sympathize with you. I realize you got dragged 800 miles away from home. I realize you're away from everybody that you know. I realize the pressure that's on you as a young man. I sympathize with you. Because let me just tell you the truth. I'm afraid of the king. He'll, he'll whack my head off. And look at Daniel. He had a plan already ready. That always helps too. Just don't tell somebody, I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. You need to go to him and say, hey, look, you know what? I know what you're trying to accomplish. I want to see if this is what you're really trying to accomplish. And I think we can accomplish the same goal. And all of us are going to, it's a win-win for everybody. Do you mind if you just sit down and listen for a moment? That's what he did. He goes, and so Daniel came up. He says, but Daniel said the overseer in verse 11, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over. Check this out too. Hey, God, God didn't change their names. As you'll notice all throughout the book, God never recognizes the new names that they were given. He says that, uh, the, but God, but Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said this, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. And the reason for that was there was no way in the world that that would violate any of the dietary restrictions that God had imposed on the nation of Israel. They could eat all the veggies and really what this is is grain. It's, it's grain more than vegetables. So some of you are sitting there going, see that? I tell you to eat your vegetables. You know, it's like, you know, it's, it's really grain. Now, you know, so what that meant was it opened the door for Wheaties, the breakfast of champions, um, and, and corn flakes and shredded wheat. They could, he could eat all the grain that they wanted and drink all the water that they wanted and never have to worry an ounce about whether or not they were violating the laws of God. Which is fascinating. So he had this plan together. He says, hey, give me vegetables to eat, water to drink, and then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. You know what's fascinating? This whole plan was based on his dependency upon God. He knew that God would honor him if he did the right thing. Now, does it always mean it turns out the way we want it to turn out? Absolutely not. And we'll see that later in our study. But his attitude was this. Hey, Lord, you know what? Soften this guy's heart. Let him listen to what I have to say. Because you know I'm wholly devoted to you and I want to do what's right. And we'll see where this all goes. And he said, so he listened to them. Notice that in verse 14. What happened? The other guys got involved. His buddies got involved. And they're all selling the program. Hey, hey, seriously, that's a great program. Give it us a shot and see if what we're not telling you is true. No, let's just see if this will work. And you know what? Here's a fascinating thing. At the end of 10 days, I'll guarantee you this. If you ate bran for the next 10 days, um, you're not going to look better than you do today. I don't think. I mean, unless, you know, it, it frees you up and you're going to smile a little more. But, but the reality of it is, is uh, you know, 10 days is nothing. I mean, let's face it. There's no diet in the world that's going to change your countenance in 10 days. But he just said, hey, 10 days. It wasn't long enough that it put any threat on this guy. And it, was sh- and, and it wasn't, you know, it was short enough that we can all understand. You know what? God, what? Rewarded his dedication. God rewarded his dedication. There's no question about it. There's no way that this diet changed their life in 10 days. Since he listened to them, all of them, Daniel and his buddies all got together and said, hey, trust us on this. This is going to be the greatest thing you ever saw. And all, I'm sure for 10 days they were praying, Lord, make this be the greatest thing this guy ever saw. But I, I, I also know this. At the end of that 10 days, if they would have decided, you know what, all bets are off, you're going back to eating the king's food, then at that particular point, Daniel would have to say, you know what, I'm sorry, but I'm still not going to compromise. And you can do with me whatever you want to do, and God's will be done. 
says at the end of the 10 days, their parents seemed better and they were fatter. Now you know that that doesn't mean fatter, unless they're eating cheese sauce with their veggies. But what it means is they just look better. See, there was a time, you know, there was a time actually in the history of the world where if people uh, looked good, they, they were actually called fat. Hey, they were fatter, looked better, because most people were really scrawny looking, because they didn't eat very much. And they were saying, well, hey, these people, these guys look good. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables and all the water they can drink. And so as we go through this, you know, don't miss out. You know, it's amazing to me how many people, they read stuff like this. And the only thing they get out of it is, you know what, I think I need to change my diet and start eating more vegetables and drinking more water. Right, please don't miss the big picture here. How about just, hey, can you be a little more courageous? Can you be wholly devoted to God? Can you do what's right before God? Can you draw a line in the sand and say, hey, you know what, I'm not crossing that line because I know the word of God in my heart and I'm not going to sin against God. His decision was made in his mind. His decision was made in his heart. His determination was based on his obedience to the word of God, not to the rules that his parents or anybody else around him gave. But there was a point in time where he too had to give his life to the Lord. There's a point in time where every child that grows up in a Christian home has to make the same decision that his mother or father made sometime before them. And that is, there's a point where he says, Lord, forgive me for my sins and I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins and I want him to come into my life and be the Lord of my life. Every individual person has to come to a point where they make that decision. And then that decision is made in that person's heart to be wholly devoted to God, to be used by God. His dependency was on the Lord. He trusted him. Lord, I don't know where this is all heading, but I'm going to trust you that no matter what the outcome is, hey, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he went on, and his dedication in this case was rewarded in a tangible way. And let's close with this last section. It says, as for these four youths, God gave knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. And Daniel, Daniel different than the rest, even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. And it's important in our study of the book of Daniel that we understand this very special gift that God gave to Daniel because it will come into play throughout this particular study how important it is that God gave Daniel a gift to interpret dreams and interpret visions. It says, Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, okay, this went on for three years. At the end of the three years, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. Brought them in, man, there's probably fanfare, there's probably the trumpets blasting and they marched them all in. And look at this new product that we have to present to the king. And the king talked with them. Every one of them. Not just Daniel and his buddies, but every one of them that had been taken into captivity. All of them. And he talked with all of them. Maybe 70 of them. Maybe 100 of them. I don't even know what the numbers were. But he talked to them all. And out of all of them, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. None of them were even close to them. And they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better. It wasn't quantified. The point that he was making was they were so far heads and shoulders above everybody else. It wasn't even close. It wasn't even close. You know what? When people see our life, your life, my life, do they see someone who is heads and shoulders taller than the rest of the culture in which we live? Do they see someone ten times better than the norm? An employee ten times better than anybody else they've ever seen? 
a student ten times better as far as attitude and, con- and convictions and dedication to doing what's right than anybody else. Ten times better on the athletic field, not just in baseball or football or track or swimming or whatever ability, but as far as their attitude is concerned, their respect for authority, their dedication and willingness to work hard, to be the best that they can be, to excel in what they do. When people look at your life, do they see somebody that is so far ahead of everybody else that they're dying to know why? That's the audience that you and I get with people around us when we take a stand for the Lord. We're dedicated to Him, wholly devoted to Him when we know the Word of God in our heart and we know what compromise is. We recognize it for what it is. A subtle temptation, a subtle package, all dressed up real nice and neat, ready to be handed to us on a silver platter. And we say, no, I'll have none of that. Men and women who have dedication and determination know know the will of God even when they're away from home on a business trip or at college or somewhere where nobody even knows who they are are still determined to do what's right before God. Is that what they see in your life and in my life? I hope so. I pray so. Why? Because God honors that. God honors that. But what he's really honoring in the life of Daniel is something very simple and it's called courage. He rewards courage. God rewards courageous people. Does it mean we'll never be persecuted? Absolutely not. Does it mean that you won't be made to look like a fool if people have the opportunity? They'll go out of their way to try to make you look like a fool. But let me tell you something. What Reggie White did on national television took a lot of courage. What he said and what he did was honoring to the Word of God. And the only thing that matters to me and to you, and I hope to everybody else that counts himself among the people of God, is this. One day when we stand before the Lord, the only thing I care to hear is this. Chuck, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You know, because one day Daniel wasn't with these guys anymore. He wasn't in the pressure to conform. He wasn't in the Babylonian Empire, the Chaldean Empire. He wasn't there anymore. One day Daniel died and he gave account of his life before God. And I'll guarantee you the Lord Jesus Christ said to Daniel, as we'll look at his life and the life of his friends, Hey, you guys did good. Is that what you long to hear? Then stop compromising. Let's start being courageous. Father, thank you for your word. We just pray that 